It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Talk cheese. Recorded live. All right, how you doing, everybody? Casey Ryan here again for another episode of The Cutting Room Floor, a little podcast that I started to showcase indie entertainers and creative types from all walks. Uh, if you've got a story to tell or a project to sell, then I want to hear from you. As simple as that. So the easiest way to get a hold of me is on Twitter. I've been taking a bit of a break due to health issues, but uh, I'm back in fighting shape, as they say, so I'm going to be starting to do the show again on a regular basis. But you can hit me up on Twitter, at Cutting Room MRB. I'm on there uh, every day. Uh, or you can uh, shoot me a friend request uh, online. Just look for Casey Ryan. I'm not. There aren't that many of them, and just look for my icon there, the one that was designed by Paul Reeves out of Scotland, who uh, to this day still hasn't missed a, any more than a handful of episodes, I think. He's one of the oldest and uh, most loyal friends that I have, either on or offline. So, Paul, thanks again for joining uh, in the chat room there. Uh, or you can hit me up with a like on Facebook. I'll post some random stuff that I find funny, and, of course, all my recordings go up there, and that's at facebook.com forward slash cuttingroommrb. Uh, so the reason that you're listening to this now or downloading it later, we've got another two great guests lined up for you uh, today covering completely diverse topics. And I, I, I love it when this happens because I never know what I'm going to get by way of a story out of this. And, and it's always really cool to have a bit of a dichotomy between the first half and the second half. So uh, sometimes it doesn't line up that way. Sometimes, uh, yeah, and, and that's great. I'll have like three or four comic book people on or whatever. But, but uh, it really is fun when you get a wide variety of projects. Um, and also, uh, a quick little shout-out to Leah Savoli, who's one of the hardest-working uh, people that I know, one of the most loyal people that I know, and one of the most social media-savvy people that I know. And she, she's helped dozens and dozens and dozens of uh, crowdfunding campaigns get across the finish line. Uh, I'm proud to be a stop on her trail. Uh, she usually sends me a lot of the, uh, the people that she works with, and I've gotten to talk to some really, really cool people in the process. And uh, uh, you know, my first guest in the, uh, the first half here uh, is an example of that. So again, Leah, you'll never be able to hear me say a bad word about you. Thank you to Bits, and uh, you know, it's great fun to work with anybody that you point in my direction. So, uh, in the spirit of that, in the first half, I've got uh, Roy Messenger here, who is a director. Uh, he is the brains behind a uh, piece called American Trial. And this is the kind of thing that gets me thinking, and I, I, I love finding this kind of stuff on, um, on TV, whether it's the jinx or, you know, true dramas or anything like that, that's sort of a retelling or, uh, you know, um, of course, the O.J. Simpson bit and, and uh, you know, the retelling of that and what would have happened if they'd done this or that. Uh, so this is being pitched as kind of an experimental film, but also a documentary, too. Uh, and it deals with a, a really hotbed topic over the course of the last couple of years. And it unfortunately, becomes, it seems to get worse and worse every year. But uh, it deals with the topic of police brutality, and it uses an actual case as a backdrop. Uh, and the, uh, again, the film is called American Trial, and I have the director here, Roy Messenger. And uh, it's always great to have somebody on the show for the first time. So, uh, Roy, welcome to the Cutting Room Floor. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to, to be on my on a podcast. First time I've ever been interviewed on a podcast, so that's exciting. Fresh meat. All right. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> 
No, I, I, can't, I can't, of course. But uh, the first question I always have for everybody is a bit of an icebreaker. Uh, did I get all of your bio information right, or was that close enough? Yeah. That not only that, you also pronounced my name my name correctly, which is uh, a rare uh, feat. So congratulations I, on that. Yeah, and I I kind of cheated because you and I had a discussion offline, and I I always try to make a point of that. You know, that's true. It, but it, even you know, on the second try, it's still not a. It, it still takes a while, so uh, you should still feel good about yourself. Well, okay. Well, you know, I'll celebrate the small stuff, I guess. <laughs> so, uh, l- l- let's get right into it here. What is the uh, what is American Trial about? I mean, it's kind of a blunt title, right? But but what yeah. what are you what are you doing with this? So I don't know, uh, you know, who exactly listens to your podcast, but uh, imagine that most people uh, around the country are familiar with the name Eric Garner, uh, who was killed uh, in a police altercation a couple of years ago in Staten Island. Uh, what what most people remember is the uh, the fact that he repeated "I can't breathe" eleven times uh, while uh, a few cops were uh, kind of holding him back, and one of them had his uh, hand around his throat. Uh, oh, that was that and, case. Okay, uh, okay, uh, yeah, because yeah. uh, there there was a few of them that were floating around, but that was the guy that, that was screaming "I can't breathe, I can't breathe." Right? Exactly, exactly. And then you know, uh, you know, NBA players wore "I can't breathe" T-shirts to games and all kinds of stuff like that, and of course. The reason why it, afterwards it still uh, uh, stayed on people's minds is because, of course, the, the grand jury in New York decided not to prosecute any of the police officers involved in that incident. Um, and so what I thought of doing, uh, and I should say that I, I, was in, uh, I was still in film school when, uh, when, when that happened, when the grand jury decided not to prosecute any of the, any of the police officers. And uh, my my back. You said before that the, the the project is experimental and it's documentary and it's so it's 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 very it's difficult to define. My first initial kind of uh, intuition to do was to just write a script about what it would have been like had there been a trial. Uh, you know, just you know, write a courtroom drama. You know, you know, everybody knows who the witnesses are. Everybody knows who the defendant would be, uh, and just write a courtroom drama about you know what if. Um, but then. I thought about it and I realized that what the, the appeal of the what if idea is that you're kind of asking what, what could have happened. And I realized that if I write a script, instead of asking what could have happened, I'm just asking what I think should have happened. And because nobody knows me and nobody cares what I personally think, I thought it would be much more interesting to say, okay, let's, you know, instead of me writing dialogue for a witness that we know who he is, or for a lawyer who might be uh, assigned to the case, let's just get the actual witness on camera in a courtroom setting to say what he or she might have said anyway, uh, get a, an actual attorney to ask the question that an attorney would ask in a, in a case like this, for both sides, of course. Uh, and that's how the idea of the trial that could have been, uh, or American trial, as I ended up calling it, uh, that's how that uh, project came to be. You know, did, did I get this right? You got an actual attorney to interview an actual witness. So you kind of got kind of a move. So it, it, more than that, more than that. So what I did is I, I said, you know, the, a witness and an attorney are an example. But I, so, I, you know, I have a list of witnesses who uh, either would have or could have potentially testified had this been tried. And I got four attorneys, two for the defense and two for the prosecution, uh, to sort of 
play the role of the prosecution and the defense. Uh, but they're not really playing a role because they're just doing their job. Uh, the, two, uh, the two attorneys that I got to be the prosecutors are, in fact, former prosecutors who now work as, uh, as criminal defense attorneys. The two defense attorneys that I got are two of the top, uh, top criminal defense attorneys in, in, in Manhattan. Uh, beg your pardon? I said, holy hell. I, I, you know, oh. I, I, I mean, I was reading it, but I, I, I wow. I, 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 how did you manage that? Uh, you know, how did you go about you know getting in touch with these people? And, and uh, uh, in one word, Google. Uh, I just uh, so the you know the first thing I did was uh, so the first thing I did was you know is is get the the Garner family uh, involved because obviously a project like this could never uh, could never be successful or even or even come to be if you don't have the family's backing. Uh, so I, I I went to um, it was uh, it was very shortly after I graduated film school, so this would be like six months after uh, the the uh, indictment or the non-indictment decision. Uh, it was a rally for the one-year anniversary of Garner's death, and I just it was a rally in Brooklyn. I just met the widow there. Uh, I told her about the project, and she immediately got very excited and, and enthusiastic about it. She will also, of course, participate. She's a witness for the prosecution. She will play herself. Um, and yeah, it must that... have been a delicate balancing act for you to to position this, though, right? Like, uh, I guess how how did you go about positioning this to to Eric Garner's wife? I mean, uh, you know, you, you're dealing with something that that is a fundamental tragedy, right? That, that sure. uh, you know, not not only was, I mean, he unjustly killed, but he was unjustly killed in a, a very public way, right? Sure. So so I, I guess what is the thought process that you go through when, when you're approaching somebody who is, is intimately tied to Eric Garner's wife to say, look, I'm fresh out of film school. You know, I haven't got a really, you know, I haven't got a track record, but, you know, this is what I want to do. And, and I mean, this is an ambitious project for a, for a seasoned filmmaker, much less somebody fresh out of film school. I mean, you know, I sure. applaud you for it, really. Um, so, I mean, the, the main thing was just, was just honesty. Like I was, I was very upfront about not, not just about myself, but also about the fact that, you know, in order for this project to have any merit, uh, we need to be objective, you know, and, 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 you know, uh, if, if this had gone to court, uh, the defense would have put up a fight and there's no guarantee that it would have ended up in a conviction. Uh, so, uh, and, and my intention is not to convict the police. My intention is to ask, okay, like, what would have happened? Everybody feel a lot of people feel like this should have gone to court. That's what kind of like the mainstream idea is that that this is a that this should have been tried. And so the question is, what would have happened if had had it been tried? And there's no guarantee for a conviction. And I'm not looking for a conviction per se. Uh, and I was so I was very upfront with that. And I said, like, you you are aware that I'm going to get an actual attorney who's going to be representing the police officer, and they are they potentially might say things that are not very pleasant to hear about your husband, about your, uh, about his, uh, his he, he has, he had a pre, he had a previous, uh, criminal record in, uh, uh, Garner. Not that it's relevant to the case, but it's, you know, something that, that, uh, that people bring up. Uh, and I, and I explained to her that it's, that in order for this uh, film to work, we can't uh, censor that. So it would have to be, you know, it's either everything or nothing. Uh, and she was very open to that. She was, she understood immediately. Uh, and for her, I think 
I mean, there's a lot, you know, for starters, it's it's a matter of commemorating or, or, or just reminding people that he existed, that, that, that this happened. Uh, it's a... Uh, on a very personal level, I think that that's what she that's what she feels. She she likes the fact that Eric Garner's name is being brought off. That it's that I'm you know we had a during the crowdfunding campaign there were two pieces about us that came up in the Daily News uh, in the in the New York Daily News, and I think that for her just, just the va- the very fact that they keep mentioning him that people remember that it that 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 even though for her it might be very difficult I think that's something that's important to her, um, and I also think that. You know, she's not, she has, you know, obviously there are, you know, Eric Garner is just one of many, many cases, similar similar cases. And a lot of family members become very active. A lot of them really try to shy away from the, um, from the press. Uh, and I would say that Esau, the, the widow is, uh, you know, she's not looking for too much attention or anything like that. And she's not an activist. Uh, but I do think she she understands that uh, her husband's death can be used as a way to try and get things, you know, just improve things and and and, and try to avoid the next victim from uh, from dying the way the way that her husband died. And I think now, he, uh, have you received any pushback from say law enforcement authorities or? Uh, and I'm going to pick my words very carefully here, but I'm going to go there anyway. But, but uh, just in terms of the notion of, of of trying the officer in the court of public opinion, since so he wasn't actually indicted, like uh, sure, have you gotten any feedback like that at all? Or, or so I would say that it's it's there, but it's rare. So you know, for example, during the crowdfunding campaign, uh, we reached out to uh, a lot of the acquaintances, friends, families of the attorneys who are participating in the, uh, in the, uh, in, in, in the film. And the way I've cast them is basically the two prosecutors are both white men and they are both, uh, let's say, you know, I would say moderate conservatives. You know, they're, you know, they used to be military prosecutors. They had a, you know, they had a, mil- a pretty distinguished military career. Uh, they're from, I think both of them, one is from Long Island. I think the other one's from upstate New York. Uh, and the defense attorneys are both women. And one of them is, a, is in fact, a woman of color. Uh, and so the friends of the prosecutors were, like I said, are both white men. And, you know, they actually have a lot of friends in, or in, in law enforcement. So one of them, uh, wrote an email, kind of like a kind of like a nasty email, saying that you know it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, the, the project isn't worthy, and he used uh, his his words were uh, not as uh, uh, polite. Let's put it that way. Uh, but and and I know that they've gotten a couple of other com- like comments from their colleagues saying you know what you know why why on earth would you do something like this? But on the whole, on the whole, I would say that uh, the the response has been very very positive. And even people who are, you know, for example, uh, one of the witnesses for the defense is a former police officer. He's uh, he's now a uh, uh, he's a private investigator now, uh, and he was part of the uh, he w- he worked for the DA's office while, uh, you know, in the days that the grand jury was convened. And uh, he wrote a report basically exonerating the officer 
of anything, any wrongdoing. So basically, according to his report and his analysis of the video, he said, no, no, this police, like the, 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 the result was tragic and, 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 and unfortunate. But as far as the procedure and the process and the decision making of the police officer, there's nothing wrong. And he came up and he, he, he agrees to be a part of the project and he's going to provide his testimony for the defense saying what he thinks and what he actually wrote in this report uh, because he understands that, you know, that I'm not looking to vilify anybody and that uh, people should know. You know, if there's a police officer who's been, it was a police officer for 20 years, and as far as he's concerned, there was nothing wrong there. Maybe, maybe there's, maybe the problem is the, the, and that's very possible. Maybe the problem is the training that the police go through and the procedures that they have and not the action of this particular police officer. And maybe it is wrong to make a scapegoat out of that police officer when there's, when the problem goes, is, 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 is a lot deeper. That's very, very possible. Uh, and I think that it's very hard for, you know, there are people who are, you know, there's whatever the police say, they're, they're right and you should leave them alone. But I think most people have to agree that, you know, uh, New York City alone in 2016, according to a Yahoo uh, article that I read last week, paid $250 million in civil rights and police misconduct uh, settlements that even didn't, that did, didn't, didn't even make it to court. So a quarter of a billion dollars by just one city in the United States. So clearly there's something wrong. Uh, and I think, uh, you know, it's very difficult to argue and say that, you know, no, everything's fine. That's just the way it should be. Uh, and I think that's the way most people see it. But, uh, okay, then, then I'll, I'll ask you this, and this is kind of, uh, you know, kind of an unfair question, admittedly, but it's that, I mean, you know, you don't have to look very hard as you pointed out, right, that there is something pops up somewhere in the country, it seems like it's a couple of weeks, almost. Right. Whether, you know, the one that really bothered me was uh, the one that, that took place out of the assisted living facility for autistic uh, adults. And, uh, oh, back in the fall, when he was lying yeah, down. Yeah, the guy was holding a toy Tonka truck, and he was gunned down in the parking lot. And I, yeah. like, why does this keep happening? I, I, I guess, you know, from your take on this, having done some research on it, why do you think this is happening? Uh, wow, there's a lot of reasons. I think the, 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 okay, so you have to break it down. There are, there are several reasons. Uh, one thing that you can't, that you have to deal with is there is a racist, there is a racism factor. Race is a factor. The fact of the matter is that when you're black and even if you're in, in, in you're unarmed, uh, the odds of you getting shot are significantly higher than if you're of any other uh, uh, ethnic group. That's just a fact, and, 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 and people who argue otherwise are either blind or lying to others or lying to themselves. It's just, it's just, that's just the way it is. Now, whether it's this kind of like malignant KKK type of racism or something different, that's uh, that that's that's another question. I would say that it's I don't I don't think it's this malevolent. I don't think that cops are kind of like inherently racist or anything like that. I think they deal with a lot of stereotypes, and everybody deals with those stereotypes. And the problem is that their training and their their, their procedures are just not adequate, and they are outdated to work with uh, the with the communities that they serve today. Um, you know, think think about it this way. 
um, the military, right? They work, you know, uh, 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 you know, soldiers in Iraq or soldiers in Afghanistan, they work in ho- much more hostile environments than Staten Island or Chicago or wherever these incidents happen. And somehow they don't end up killing a bunch of uh uh, 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 just you know, standbyers or, or innocent civilians who are unarmed and have nothing to do with it, with uh, with with the, with what they're looking for, with the terrorists that they're looking for. The reason why that happens, in my opinion, is because in the military there are strict and very very clear rules of engagement. So you are not allowed to shoot a person on the street if you're in the military, unless certain conditions are met. And some of those conditions are that you warned that person that you've fired in the air, that you've fired below the knees, and only after that happens and this guy still approaches you and he's got a knife or he's shouting Allah Akbar or something like that, then you shoot to kill. But most police departments in the United States don't have those rules of engagement. There's not that process, and, 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 and police officers just have a you know, prerogative to just shoot to kill whenever they feel that's necessary. And the problem is that they are trained in a way that does that, that they are they just they are not trained to to uh, diffuse the situation and avoid using that that type of force. And what I said about those about the stereotypes and the things those things that they deal with. When you see videos a lot, like take take Philando Castile or or uh, the the I think his name was Philando Castile. The one in Minnesota was shot in his car next to his wife and and and. Uh, and son, when he was reaching for the glove compartment to show the to show his uh, driver's license. So in that incident, when you look at that video, when you hear the police officer's voice, you can tell that he's that that he's terrified. He's absolutely terrified. And I and and and, and that's that's you can't blame someone for being for being terrified. But you expect a police officer to be trained to not let that fear influence his judgment. And in that sense, I would say that's probably not the police officer's fault. It's the fault of the police department that didn't give that police officers the tools to handle that situation. Or, uh, or maybe one could argue to, to vet them psychologically properly to to see whether they were sure. tracking that kind of stress. Yeah, yeah. When I say when I say training, it does, it's not necessarily physical or 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 you know or gun training. It's it's it's, it's about it's police work training, and a lot of that is, is psychological, of course. Now, one could argue too, though, just to, to play devil's advocate, that, that uh, you, you cited the military as having more sort of appropriate responses, and you know the, the troops that are bravely serving in you know Iraq and all over the bloody place, right? Um, but there is misconduct there too, right? I mean, you know, the scandals break about waterboarding and mistreatment at Abu Ghraib and 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 all this stuff. So, I, I mean, I think that this is inherently a law enforcement problem and not necessarily just a police problem but 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 anybody with the authorities going and, and sure but you know what that way the reason why that happens is because there are the the, the problems of, of 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 soldier misconduct uh and things like that happen in places where or you know usually of course there are exceptions but the the major problems are when the rules are not clear and when the procedures are not clear uh, so when when you're in Guantanamo and you're not under the, you know you're not obligated to follow the the, the you know the basic human rights of that and, and are enabled by the U.S. Constitution, then that's when waterboarding happens. Uh, but if you're on U.S. soil and uh, and that happens, then you know there are 
significant ramifications if you get caught. Uh, and it's very clear that the, what, what, you're, what you can do with a war prisoner and what you're not supposed to do with a war prisoner. Uh, but the problem in, in, when it comes to law enforcement is that those things are not, there is no federal, you know, every police department has their own rules. Every sheriff's department has their own rules. There is no federal standard to say when you're allowed to shoot and when you're not allowed to shoot and, uh, you know, what constitutes a suspicious figure and what doesn't constitute a suspicious figure. Uh, and so when, 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 when everything is, when everything is so, um, with just, just so unclear and every department has their own kind of like way of doing things and there's no, you know, federal agency to oversee. And, uh, you know, like, I don't know if you, you're aware of this, but there was a very, very serious and very damning report made by the DOJ against the Chicago police department that came out a couple of months ago. And I, they I'm said pretty much about that. Yeah, sure. Yes, and they say pretty much what I say that you know there is no there are no clear rules of engagement. Cops don't don't know when they're supposed to shoot and 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 why, uh, and that the training is outdated. That they have all these like all these videos from the 50s or something that they used to train cop with cops with, uh, and that just hasn't changed. Uh, and so no wonder that that the that the Chicago Police Department is you know is responsible for so many uh, cases of misconduct and police brutality. Uh, but the problem is that the DOJ can write that re that report, but they don't have any authority to mandate any change because the police department in Chicago is, uh, you know, it, it's it's uh, it's under the the, the 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 city of Chicago, and they only answer to the constituents of Chicago. So unless the Chicago, the, the citizens of Chicago demand that their mayor force these changes. Uh, nothing is going to happen. Okay, I need to. Okay, I I really want to keep this conversation going, right? But we've only got a couple of minutes left, and I want to make sure we get in a a good solid plug for your crowdfunding campaign. Now, uh, I understand that. Congratulations, first of all, that that uh, you guys had this going up until just recently, and I was trying to figure out a way to get you on, but uh, uh, you guys actually managed to hit your target. Is that right? That's right. Went just a little over. Okay, and um, what was that experience like for you? Was that your first experience doing a crowdfunding campaign? No, I did a crowdfunding campaign for my uh, thesis film in uh, a couple of years ago for a short. Uh, both ex both experiences were nerve wracking, and I, I hope I never have to do do another crowdfunding again. Uh, Famous but, last uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'll talk to you in a couple of months. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, but uh, we'll see. But yeah, well, that remains to be seen. But hopefully, but I mean, it's you know, it's definitely you learn a lot. Uh, you learn a lot about yourself and how you deal with pressure. And uh, it's, uh, I, I took some, of, I took some of my, uh, some of my uh, pressure out on Leah. I hope she forgives me by this point. Uh, so I took some of my stress out on her by she was my campaign manager. Um, well, you, 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 you did that on your knees. Thank you, Lucky Stars, but you had her for campaign manager. I can tell you that. Sure. Wow. Yeah. Sure. So are you, uh, are you still accepting help, or I guess what are the uh, the plans to, to to finish it off? And so what so what we've raised, yeah. So and that was that what we've raised, and that was the intention to begin with, is is to raise enough to be able to complete principal photography. Uh, there's still significant amount of a significant amount of crowd of crowdfunding of fund fundraising. Uh, that needs to be done uh, in order to actually complete and deliver the film. Uh, 
we we do still take uh, contributions of, uh, through our fiscal sponsor, and they're also tax deductible. So uh, uh, you can write a check to the Maisel's Documentary Center, uh, and uh, and that's like I said, it's tax deductible, and that will be passed on to us. Um, and we are also in touch with a few. Uh, you know, the the crowdfunding campaign was very successful, and also in creating a little buzz. And uh, we've gotten some uh, contacts uh, from. Uh, um, a couple of organizations in New York, a, a, a television network. Uh, so hopefully the rest of the money will come in uh, fairly soon so that we won't have to, so, the, so that the transition to post-production will be smooth and we won't have to stop uh, in order to continue fundraising before we are able to start editing. Well, I, I can tell you this much, Roy. If you, if you do have to go that route, or even if you don't, I'd be proud to have you back for a follow-up interview for uh, you know a few months down the line there, maybe towards the fall once you you get a little bit further down the funnel. But but uh, you know if you're open to it, of course. Yeah, absolutely. I'd love to be back. Okay, so I think what I'm going to try to do here is I'm just going to toggle over. I think I've got my uh, my next guest on me. Hello, is that Sarah? Hey, I'm here. Hey, Sarah. How are you? I'm well. How are you guys? Good, good. So uh, good. I, I know that you've been listening here. So I've got uh, yeah. I've got Roy Messenger on the uh, on the line here, uh, who's director of a uh, a documentary, American Trial. And uh, Roy, this is Sarah Deacons, a fellow uh, Canadian here, uh, originally from Kenosha, Wisconsin, who's uh, got sort of a, a, another kind of experimental piece called Yellow that we're going to be talking about in the second half, uh, more of an artistic piece. Okay. So, uh, really, one last time, where can people go? Let's get in a, uh, just a mention of your website or your Twitter feeds or anything like that. Where can people go to uh, learn more about American Trial? Sure. So the best thing to do is to go to our Seed and Spark page. So that's uh, www.seedandspark.com slash fun slash American dash trial. Uh, and they can just follow, click, hit the follow button, and then they can get our regular updates. Uh, we're also on Twitter at, at American... Uh, Low dash trial, and we're also on Facebook. Uh, it's uh, Facebook.com/slash American Trial Movie. Okay, well, great, and thanks a lot. This has been a really interesting conversation. Uh, and certainly, Absolutely. if there's anything that I can do to to help you out, then let me know. And uh, please do give all my best to Leo. All right. Will do. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Okay, great. <clears throat> Excuse me. Uh, so that was, uh, again, uh, uh, Roy Messenger, and the um, the film is American Trial, and you can find that on Seed and Spark. Uh, so in the second half, I've got Sarah Deacons here. Uh, Sarah wins the uh, Good Sport Award because she actually wrote to me a while ago while I was in the hospital, so I didn't get a chance to write back to her until this week. Uh, but she's originally from Kenosha, Wisconsin, uh, until her parents moved up north to Canada. Of course, now she divides her time between Vancouver, Toronto, and Los Angeles, uh, like a lot of filmmakers do, especially the ones from up north. Um, her first, her first, the first film that she wrote, actually called Late, actually landed a spot at the Cannes Film Festival in France. And another film that she was part of called Greece uh, is in the country. It had a great run on the festival circuit as well. In addition to which, she's done all kinds of TV shows, uh, Battlestar Galactica and all kinds of other great things. Uh, uh, um, the, uh, I think it was uh, The Outer Limits was another one that I saw uh, that she had a uh, credit for. Um, prolific actress and director and writer, and uh, the latest piece that she's got going is on Kickstarter right now. Um, sort of towards the tail end of its run, but uh, certainly not beyond the realm of reaching its target. Uh, it's got 10 days left, and uh, it's a pilot uh, for an experimental piece called Yellow, and she's here to talk about that. 
Uh, so without further ado, again, another newcomer to the cutting room floor. It's always great to have new people on the show. Uh, cutting room floor, welcome, Sarah Deacons. Uh, Sarah, how are you? Hey, that was an amazing introduction. Yeah, okay, so the, the first question I always have for, for new people is uh, kind of an icebreaker. Uh, did I get all of your inf bio information right, or was that close enough? No, you certainly did. I, I always think it's funny when people say I, I was started out in Kenosha, Wisconsin, because I, I literally was just born there, and then we left. <laughs> so I, I've never been back, but yes, I am technically from Kenosha, Wisconsin. So yeah, yeah you were born American, but your, your parents moved here. Yeah. Yeah, my parents lived in Chicago. My dad was doing his doctorate in Chicago. And at the time that I was born, you couldn't have the father in, in the uh, delivery room uh, in Chicago. So they drove across the state line into Kenosha, Wisconsin, where he could be in the room. So that's why I was born there. So, so where do you live principally? Like you mentioned that you uh, divide your time between Vancouver, LA, and Toronto. But when, when you're up here, where do you live most of the time? Yeah, I, I now make my home in Toronto. I'm originally from Vancouver. I lived there uh, for most of my life, and then a brief five-year stint in LA, and now here in Toronto. Cool, cool. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm down there often enough. So, uh, so yeah, right. right? Yeah, it, yeah. It is, you know what? It, it, you know what? I mean, everybody makes you know the the comparisons between Montreal and Toronto the same way that they do New York and LA. But but I, I got to tell you, Toronto is a fun place to be. Well, listen, Montreal is a great place to be. I just shot an update. But, yeah, I, I'm very happy living in Toronto. I love how multicultural it is. I love how much culture there is here. I love how the energy of the city is always around you. And I feel a little more sleepy in Vancouver and a little less motivated. So it's better for me to be here. I've never been to Vancouver. The uh, the closest I've been is I actually caught a. I don't count it if all I've seen is the airport, but I, I did fly through there once. But. It's gorgeous. It's a, there's no more beautiful place in Vancouver when the uh, when the sun's out, <laughs> which doesn't happen. Well, yeah, you know, it's like Rich Little used to say, you know, "BC is a great place if you don't mind living in a car wash." Right? Yeah, <laughs> that's actually pretty accurate. Yeah. <laughs> yeah so. So yellow, right? Like I, I was reading yeah. about this today, right? Mm -hmm. I, and this is one of those ideas that, that is so elegant and simple by way of storytelling that you almost wonder why nobody has thought of it beforehand. And, and I say that with the highest intended respect. Um, oh, this, is the kind of, this is the kind of thing that I'd run out and see or stream it if it was on Crave or whatever. But, mm -hmm. uh, you know, from your perspective, what, what is this concept about? So this is the first of a seven-episode series. So what I'm trying to do is, is make the pilot episode of, and it'll be each color of the rainbow. So red, orange, yellow, green, blue, indigo, violet. We're starting with yellow just because that's the idea I had for this particular pilot piece. And uh, it just follows 10 characters over the course of one afternoon in an art gallery. And throughout the course of that afternoon, they all go through some kind of crossroads in their lives. So it's very, it's about, I wanted to place uh, characters in a uh, space that is built for self-reflection and for openness to, you know, feelings and thoughts, which we are sort of guarded against in our regular life out on the street. And But people are different in an art gallery or a museum. They're quieter and they have, you know, space and time and concentration, I guess, and stillness to feel. And it's a, it's a whole different experience being a human being in a place like that. So I wanted to put a bunch of characters in that space and interweave their storylines and uh, 
catch little glimpses of them primarily from the point of view of the art. So these seven characters, like, are, are they all from various backgrounds? Are they all similar in some way? Do they, do they share some common link, whether it's known or unknown? Or, or are you looking for different demographics or different types of stories to tell for each of these seven people? Yeah, the it's ten people in the actual ten people, uh, sorry. first episode. No, let's say it's seven episodes, ten people in the first one. Uh, yeah, they they will all interweave, but they are all from different backgrounds. There's a security guard who grew up in Africa, and his family was uh, killed by rebels. Um, there's a forty-something woman who's there on a, meeting someone from a blind date, and she's just trying to have her life. Her father is sick, and she's taking all taking care of him all the time, and she's just trying to have some peace in an art gallery and meet someone to have a connection with. There's a, a married couple that are going through that awkward time after you've had your first child, and and uh, there's a, a wrench that gets thrown in that plan when somebody else shows up that knows the husband. And there's just a, there's a, a lot of interweaving, and, but they are all from different demographics, yes. Now, are, when when you say yellow, are they, are they all looking at the same piece of art, or uh, what is? They're they're all looking at lots of different pieces of art, but there, there's one particular piece. And if I can shoot this properly, the idea is to not fully see uh, any of the paintings in detail until the very end. And during the credit roll, we'll go through the whole place and show you all of the art that we were looking at. And the hook on that is that all of this art is done by the same artist. James Picard, who's an amazing, he's just an incredible phenomenon. He does all different kinds of art. He's been able to recreate all the masters, and people can't tell the difference, and he does all different styles. So it'll seem like a whole different gallery's worth of stuff, but it's all done by one guy. Um, and they will all rest, come to rest at, at, the, at some point on this piece that's called Yellow. And you won't see it till the end, but uh, it's the piece that sort of gets all of them to a place where they have their revelation or make a choice or come to some kind of peace about something. So uh, they all are link, linked through that one piece. So the, the, the catharsis. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah, the, yeah, the door, the doorway <laughs> to, another, to another direction. You know, they all sort of end up going in a different direction than they have been by the end of the piece. Now, uh, this is as good a time as any to bring this up, but you actually enlisted the help of a, a good friend of yours who was an artist to, to uh, actually provide some visual material, right? Yes. Are you talking about Nathan, or who are you talking about? I was talking about uh, James Picard. Oh, James. Picard. Yeah, James Picard is amazing. Uh, yeah, he's a good friend, and uh, I've, I've been to a couple different studios of his, and they all are filled, like you would think it's all different artists. It's incredible what he does, and he never stops. He's and he will text me at three in the morning. He did. He actually texted me last night about he's working on the yellow piece right now. He's doing a piece called Yellow for the film, which is super exciting for me. And he's been so generous with his time and his energy. Uh, and I was looking through some of the pieces that you had posted up there, and that that one that uh, he had the stencil drawing of um, one of my all-time favorite actors, Philip Seymour Hoffman. I mean, that was yeah. from, like somebody who had known the guy. Right. I mean, that yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's actually. I haven't asked James about that. It's possible that they've even met. He has. He knows a lot of well-known people, um, and he's also a fan, of course, as we all are. People like Philip. So, um, yeah, I, I don't know if he actually met Philip, but he's 
he's, you know, the laughing people, so it's possible. But that's a beautiful uh, example of just a simple piece he did. And then there's some that you would just think, oh, that was by Rembrandt, you know. So, okay, so I got a question from the, uh, the, the chat room here from, uh, from a fellow artist, uh, uh, Paul Reeves, who actually did, does some really impressive paintings, by the way, out of Scotland. Yeah, Paul, I, I, you just followed me on Twitter. I saw that you do uh, art for uh, comic books and, and uh, video games, I think. Yeah, but he also does uh, paintings too. So, oh, great! Okay. I, I don't know if you saw that, but but uh, he, he was asking how significant a role does the artwork uh, play itself in in the movie or in the, the, art, uh, in the pilot? Right. Uh, in the pilot, the artwork plays an extremely significant role in that it it will feel almost like another character in the piece, as we are seeing a lot of humans from the point of view of the art. So it's almost as if the art is observing the people as well as the people looking at the art. And uh, are you, are you piece, sure? Yeah, can you hear me? Yeah, yeah, we were cutting in and out there for a second, so. Sorry, what it, okay, so I'll just repeat that. We, all of the art will, will play a part in that we're, we're seeing the people oftentimes through the, through the eyes of the art. So it's almost as if the art is observing the people as well. And, uh, you, you hear what the people will say about the art, but you won't see that piece until the end. So they, I mean, art affects us all differently, uh, but one thing it does do is affect us. And whether that's positive or negative or, you know, indifference, it, it, uh, it does usually affect everybody in some way. And, and that is what I want to try and do is create a series that's about human beings connecting back to their humanity through art, music, culture, uh, novels, any kind of art, art form. Now, you mentioned this is intended as a, uh, a pilot, as a, sort of a, uh, yeah. to, to use some cable jargon, a, a limited run series of, of seven, yeah. right? Well, yeah, I mean, seven is what I've got planned so far, and uh, obviously if we got picked up, I'd, I'd make more. But uh, that was the original, which is do every color of the rainbow. And I don't know if you know much about the stats in Canada. The last time they did a, um, did a, uh, a study about how many women were working in the field of directing uh, television and film in Canada, it was about 17% in the paying job compared to men. So, which is, of course, an atrocious number and, and needs to change. Uh, CBC has done a lot towards that with, committing to 50% women. Uh, women in View is, is doing a lot to create incentives for other shows to, you know, have more women on. Uh, but I just, I realize there, there must be so many women like me who, who, when they do their projects, do them, you know, obviously you do them for free, you spend your own money, because you, you just want to put out good stuff. But you also would like to work, you know, and get paid for what you do well. I've been in the industry a really long time as an actor. I've been on a ton of sets. I know how to do this job and there must be a million of me, you know, and I just thought let's create something where we can have uh, an array of different types of women that can all write and direct an episode. So we're going to go out to, you know, some of the well-known female directors as well as some of the up-and-comers and each one will write and direct their own piece and it'll be something in the same theme of human connection through the art world or to something artistic. And they'll get to tell a story they want to tell. And so, you know, we'll hope to get a native Indian director. We'll hope to get a Korean. We'll hope to, you know, so we're going to go try and get a lot of amazing women together and 
pitch this series with Yellow's pilot. Now, I mean, Canada, like the, the United States, is, uh, first of all, this is kind of a two-part question. Uh, mm-hmm. The first one's a little bit loaded, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Ha- having <laughs> experienced work on both, you know, south of the border and in Canada, do you find that there's any, that the barriers are any greater in the States versus Canada for, for women filmmakers? I mean, is it any more of a challenge up here uh, than it is down there, or vice versa? Wow. Um well, I would say I'd have to be doing it longer as a director to make a good call on that. Uh, I think it's very difficult in both places. Um, I think most women start out doing their own things to garner attention. I'll give you an example. I, I shadowed on a bunch of different TV series, uh, American slash Canadian TV series uh, last year. And uh, I shadowed the directors. I know a lot of directors because I've been an actor for a long time. And uh, I shadowed on this show that I'll remain, it'll remain nameless. Lovely people who run the show, great experience. But at the end of it, one of the exec producers said to me, listen, um, I saw your short film Grease, and it's beautiful, and, and we like it a lot. Uh, we just want to give you an example of what it takes to get in here to direct. And, and she said, that, you know, listen, we had, uh, I think we were on 22 episodes or close to that. She said, so out of 22 episodes, we had two female directors this season. One of them was uh, a very, very well-known um, woman. And the other one was a woman who had uh, done seven feature films of her own. Seven. That's a hell of a lot of feature films to do as a writer-director. And, you know, I'm no spring chicken, and I was like, I'm not going to get to make seven films before I can be a paid director, so there's got to be another way in for me. So she said, you know, well, so it's nice that you made a short film, but there you have it. And the reason that 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 woman got the job, they said, listen, she was the most qualified person we'd ever had, and her reel was better than anyone we'd ever seen. And yet they still had to bend over backwards to get her, you know, approved in L.A. So I thought, okay. This isn't going to happen just by doing a few shadowing jobs and being an actor who used to be on set a lot. You know, I and and having a few short films of my own. I just got to have to create some work somehow. So that's the idea, and I I just figured there'd be a ton of people like me as well who want to do this and are struggling to get in. And I don't want to be in competition with everyone, and I I don't want to feel like we're all against each other. I want us to create more jobs for ourselves. So that's sort of what we're hoping to do. And there's been a tremendous response to that. And uh, you know, in, in fact, IATSE 669 has come forward, uh, the Teamsters Union, and said, listen, if you use a whole crew of women, we might be able to help you out with some funding. So we're talking to them, and uh, I'd, love to, I'd love to do this, you know, as, with as many, if not all women, and make that the mandate. And if we get into their season, amazing. More women can fly. And, and you know, the second part of my question is that, you know, Canadian culture is, you know, known for its diversity, you know, from mm-hmm. based on geography, right? And, you know, the, yeah. the you know, the mood that you would get out in Vancouver is not the same mood that you would get out in the Maritimes versus Quebec or Ontario or the central part of the country, right? So yeah, in, yeah. Ter- in terms of sourcing your, uh, or even the Native community, you know, the Native Canadian community, um, mm-hmm. are you looking to, to weave different elements of, of storytelling from women of different types of backgrounds? or, or Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, that's really important to me. I'd love to get, uh, well, I will. I'll find her, uh, a Native Indian storyteller in there. I'd love to get a Korean person. I'd love to, I mean, you can't cover everything in seven episodes because there are so many different 
you know, immigrants here. Uh, but yeah, of course, I would love to cover all this because I don't know those stories, but I want to see them. You know, like I, I know my types of stories, but there are so many different types of women and so many different types of Canadian women with different experiences in mine, and I want to see them. I want to see old women and young women and women of color and women of uh, different sexual preferences and, and just different, you know. But it's the human experience ties us all together, so we're actually not all that different. You know, and I, I think that's what this series will be through the whole, the whole seven arc, if, if you do it right. Um, now, how long are each of these segments intended to be? Are they like half-hour chunks, or are they, you know, like small, more like small minute, you know, soundbite type strips? No, right? this will be a, this is a like a an hour would be about an hour. Uh, so I fifty minutes, forty to fifty minutes, I would I would guess on yellow. And that's what we would shoot to for for all of them about an hour to these years. But one of the great things that's happening now online, like if you can do something on Netflix, for instance, and uh, the OA did this really interesting thing where I don't know if you've seen the OA on Netflix. It's, it's an amazing series. And they had, you know, every episode was a different length. Some of them were only 40 minutes. Some of them were an hour and a half. Some of them were two hours. Some of them were half an hour. You know, it's just this is how much time we need to tell this chapter of the story. And I really love that. I, lo- I love that we're not writing anymore to commercial breaks when, you know, we can write to this is what the story is and this is where the break is, you know. And that's exciting to me. I'd love to get this on Netflix or somewhere like that where we can run the story the way it's meant to be told instead of having it broken up. And then the women can write the story they want to write instead of writing to commercial breaks. I don't have a... I, I know we'll be able to work that in if we have to, but it would be lovely to just have these stream the way they're meant to be seen. No, I, I'm reminded every time one of you guys brings this up, and I'm, I'm reminded of a quote by uh, by Kevin Spacey uh, mm. about the Scottish Television Film Festival, and, and uh, you know he was talking about you know his show, you know he's being uh, you know two-time Academy Award nominee, but doing a, mm-hmm. a, a serial show in House of Cards. Yeah. He said, people crave good stories. He goes, it doesn't matter. Traditional labels about movies versus TV don't matter anymore. People yeah. crave good stories. And it, it shouldn't really matter whether, you know, people go to the theater and watch something in a two-hour sitting or they go home and binge watch it over the course of a weekend and that's all that they watch for, for you know, eight mm-hmm. hours a day, right? Mm-hmm. But, but, mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, that that plays right into your wheelhouse, right, that, that yeah. you're really looking to tell good stories in whatever amount of time it takes you to do it, right? Yeah, I mean, within reason, we're not going to have a three-hour episode or anything. I don't think we'd have the budget for that. But, but yeah, I, I would love for them to be able to, to write somewhat freely and just tell the story they want to tell, just like I want to. So, yeah, I, I just think it's important for us all to all support each other, and I'm excited to see what other people will come up with in this in this vein. And uh, and I'm excited to get the, the campaign done and, and get going on the shoot. That's where we need to go next. Are you playing one of the characters yourself, or are you stepping aside from that? I am. It's it's an ensemble piece, and I'm taking a, a small role. Most of the roles uh, are only going to be used for two days, I think, of the shoot, because, uh, you know, there's so many of them, and they all interweave, so the actual shooting days for each character aren't that long. So, uh, yeah, I mean, and I've done it before on my, my first two films. I acted in them as well, and I don't find it difficult jumping back and forth. In fact, I find it keeps me in the world of the piece really well, and, and I, I work well that way, so I'm not worried about it. Um, 
but it'll be fun this time because I get to work with a bunch of friends and, and, and 10 actors instead of just myself and one other person, which I've done, you know, the first two films were just two people. So now it's, there's going to be a sense of movement in this that I haven't had to work on before and, and a sense of uh, going somewhere and uh, interweaving. And it's just going to be really exciting to, to work on that next in my directing wheelhouse. Uh, would you like to give a shout-out to any of the uh, members of your team that you've assembled either by way of a cast or crew or anybody that's been brought on board that you'd like to uh, to highlight for their efforts? Yeah, I mean, sure. I Well, Bright Light Pictures in Vancouver has come on board to to produce the, the piece, which is very exciting to me. We degrees together, and I'm so thrilled to have them on board again. That's Ariel Lavera and uh, Sean Williamson, and uh, they've got my back, and I trust them implicitly. Uh, I, the cast is, is amazing. Uh, they're all Canadian, you know, rising stars or stars in their own right. And they're, they're mostly friends of mine that I just called and said, do you want to do this? And <laughs> set them a script. And because I got all those people, that's where the interest has, has come from. So, for instance, Michael Shanks is coming on uh, from Saving Hope to, to do a bit on it. And uh, Benjamin Ayers as well, his composite producing show. And uh, and these are all people that I, I met in Vancouver. I, I did a, an Outer Limits with Michael years ago. We've remained friends over the years. Katie Boland is coming on board. She was one of the Tip Rising Stars last year. Um, and she's an amazing actress. She plays a schoolgirl who's trying to connect to the art and do a report and she just doesn't get it. She's very frustrated. So she's a really fun character and she has great comedic chops, which will be fun to break up the, the sad part. And uh, yeah, we Melinda Robic is coming on board of 192. Um, yeah, just amazing, amazing cast. Check out the Kickstarter to see the, the full lineup, but I'm so grateful to all of them for saying yes. And we still have to get our dates set, but uh, hope, I hope to keep them all when we, when we finally get the dates. Uh, so shifting gears here for for the last couple of minutes, I want to make sure that we we cover the uh, the crowdfunding campaign specifically. Yeah. You, yeah. You, guys are, you guys are close. You've got a bit of a ways to go, but you've certainly got more than enough time to be able to do it. I think, right? You're... Yeah, we do, and I also have a few people who are holding back on donating because they know that with Kickstarter, Kickstarter takes a cut, right? So those people are like, listen, I'll hold back. If you get stuck, I'll stick it in. But otherwise, you can have it after the campaign is done and then you don't have to have the percentage gone from there, you know, so, which is very generous of them. So I am not worried at this point because I know that I have enough to make it. If, uh, if nobody else donates for the next 10 days, I can still put some money in. So it'll be okay. But, uh, what I, the, the, you know, what I'd love is to get more than what we, we've asked for. We asked for 20 because we wanted to be able to make sure we made our goal. But really, you know, 50 is closer to what we'll need to pull this off. So I, I'd love to get more than 20. We can do it with 20 and we'll get more funding elsewhere. But it would be great to come in with more money. I wanted to raise some of the money myself this time instead of asking Bright Light to, to take the, the brunt of all of it. And I wanted to come in with something this time and say, I'm coming in with this much money. Now let's move forward, you know. So I, I feel like we are, you know, 10 days to go. Things heat up towards the end of the campaign. There's a lot of people that are still telling me that they're waiting till the end, and we'll see what happens with that. But it's nerve-wracking, I'll tell you that, every day. It, like, it's a lot like campaigning for office, isn't it? Yeah, it, it's, uh, it's terrifying and exciting, and it's a hell of a lot of work. I wouldn't recommend doing it alone. <laughs> No, I mean, are you and your your team planning a, a you know a bit of a blitz for the uh, you know the 
final push up the hill or, or uh... yeah there'll, there'll be a bunch of more little uh incentives and stuff um a lot more videos uh we have this thing called the yellow mystery box which it has 10 yellow items inside that people can guess about i'll just i'm giving video clues and and uh the first person who gave us a thousand dollars is going to get that box but i'm going to also offer some incentives for people if they guess what's in the box and also for bringing more people on board if you bring in three more uh pledges because of you i will this out or the other thing so we'll be we'll be offering a lot more little fun things as the next 10 days progress well yeah and i mean you know sixty three hundred dollars in, in 10 days may may seem like a lot but I, i've certainly seen people hit targets a lot more aggressive than that right and uh you guys have clearly got a, a, a good, solid product and a very interesting concept, by the way. Uh, you know, like you mentioned in one of the, uh, the promo pieces that you put together, this has almost got a bit of a, kind of a Robert Altman feel where you've got interweaving, yeah. overlapping dialogue. Is there any overlapping mm-hmm. dialogue or, or, like, I don't want to sound presumptuous? Uh, no, no, you don't sound presumptuous at all. Uh, yeah, there, I mean, there's, if you mean overlapping I mean, people talking on top of each other, which is what you hear a lot of. In- for sure, for sure, yeah. I mean, it, it's a very clean script, but we're gonna we're gonna workshop it. I think before we get on set, and all of these actors are so great. You know, there's room for a little bit of improv, but I, I hope that it's clean enough that we can. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't think there's a much overlapping in terms of people talking over each other. It's a very it's a quiet piece, but um, a lot happens. So yeah, I mean, there's a way of doing it to, to you know, like yeah. where, where it actually makes sense because you're, you're, I mean, let's face it, people do it all the time, whether it's intentional or yeah. not, in a public place, right? So absolutely, absolutely, and the, and visually there'll be a lot of overlapping too. So well, you'll you'll be in one scene and another at the same time, back and forth, and so they will be informing each other's, you know, those two conversations will be sort of unintentionally commenting on each other. So. It's a, it's, it's a really fun way to work. It, it sounds like a, a real thinker's piece and, and uh, certainly the kind of thing that I'd uh, certainly you know, stream or run out and see if I had the chance to. So I'm looking forward to seeing where this goes, Sarah. This, uh, this sounds like a really neat piece. So. Well, we're going to keep in touch with you, and, and thank you so much for letting us uh, you know, give it a little plug. And uh, um, I love that it's funny because I, I really – People were asking me, like, because it's all, you know, basically for, for women writers and directors, and people were saying, well, are you going to be writing chick flicks type stuff? And I said, I don't even know what that means other than romantic comedies, and no, we're not doing that. We're just going to be writing good stories. You know, I didn't write a story with 10 women. I wrote a story, you know, with a bunch of different characters, and they're just people to me. So I wasn't trying to write a female-driven story. I was just trying to write a human story, and I hope that the rest of the women will do the same, and, and that's what I'm interested in. So if if men are interested in that too, which I know they are, I think they'll they'll love it. You know. Well, yeah, you know, like you said, you're tapping into the human experience, right? And there's, yeah. there's somebody like this is something that my wife and I like to do is to go to an art gallery when there when there's a you know the uh, the Montreal Contemporary Art Museum. Mm, there's yeah. a uh, an exposition. I, there was one by um, by the people at Disney, and they had individual cells from movies, and then there was another one they uh, they did the Richelieu exhibit. With all mm. uh, you know, all paintings about Cardinal Richelieu, and it's amazing. You can be just sort of standing there, and there can be one image that sort of kicks you in the face, and you're just yep. stuck there staring at this thing for 15 minutes, and you don't really know why. You know. That's exactly it. Yeah, it's the it's the connection into a story, right? 
and and you see it happen with people and, and I've I've gone to the art galleries just to observe people since I started doing this and you can see when people get hooked into something. And you can see them experiencing something in their own, you know, yeah. soul. Yeah, you, you, you can see their mind working. And yeah, yeah. Really that's, just that's, captivated and they don't want to leave that spot, you know. So. Yeah, that's right. It's a magical thing. They're magical places, art galleries. So one last question for you. Where can yeah. you go to learn more about Yellow or to pledge to it or, or anything along those lines? Where can people go to get in touch with you? I know that so, you've got the Twitter feeds open and, and the Kickstarter. Yeah, yeah, I've got Twitter, Facebook, and, and, the, um, and the Kickstarter campaign. So we'll start with the Kickstarter campaign. It's, it's under Yellow, a pilot. And my name, obviously, is, is predominant there, Sarah Deacons. And then uh, on Twitter, I believe we are, let's see, I've, I've got it right here in front of me. It's under Yellow, the pilot film on Twitter. And, yeah, and, and uh, for anybody looking for you, it's Sarah with an H, right? I got it is Sarah with an H, Sarah Deacons. And uh, you can also follow uh, Yellow on Facebook as well. Um, and that is under Yellow at Sarah Deacon's film. Well, what can I tell you, Sarah? This was a lot of fun. And again, thank you for your patience and uh, you know being willing to come on with a week's notice here. And, and uh, I'd be proud to have you or anybody on your team back to talk about this again. We would love it, and I love listening to your first tap. You're right; it was such a different, different thing, and I love those kinds of documentaries. So I'm excited to see his project as well. Okay. Well, then I appreciate that. So. Uh, that's going to about do it for us today. Again, on behalf of my guest Sarah Deacons and uh, Roy Messenger, with a quick shout out to Lisa Volley, even Lisa to Casey Ryan on the cutting room floor. A uh, quick thank you to Paul Reeves again, who's um, uh, you know contributed to the chat room. It's always fun when I get a random question from Paul or anybody else who actually chimes in here. So um, that'll do it for me this week. We'll talk to you again next week. Until then, cut, print, wrap, and I am done. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.